Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and tabletop war games. I'm your host, Troy. My pronouns are he, him. And with me today... Yay, I'm Ed. My pronouns are they and them. Uh, I've foregone my elder brain juice this week for straight corn moonshine. That's good moonshine. And I had, to, I had to run away from the cops to get it to this podcast. You're welcome. I mean, yeah, run away from the cops. Always a good choice. And because this episode comes out on the 4th of July, we've decided to do an American episode. America. Yeah, we're going to talk about the one thing in America that isn't fucking terrible right now. Folklore monsters and cryptids. Woo! I didn't have any snappy comebacks for to counter your assertions. I mean, are they wrong? No. So yeah, let's talk about cryptids, because uh, Sasquatch is in favor of gay marriage. I have it on good authority. We're just going to be cryptic? Yeah. Um, the, the Jersey Devil is angry about the Roe v. Wade decision. Jersey Devil says, uh, my body, my choice. Yes. Uh, Champy, the lake monster of Lake Champlain, says, um, trans rights. Um. Yes. Mothman says... Death to bridges. Yeah, I've got nothing else for yeah, you. The Mothman, yeah, we don't talk too much about Mothman. Although we will talk about Mothman. Mothman said MAGA once, and we... We... Haven't talked to him much since. Yeah, uh, Mothman, he... Okay, I will say this about Mothman. He is not in favor of car-based infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So, before we really get into our whole cryptids and uh, um, folklore monster stuff that we're going to talk about, we have a segment on this podcast called The Week in Hobby. Ed, why don't you go first? Yay! Uh, my week has been uneventful. Uh, finally got a little bit of 3D printing done. I really don't know what the deal is with my printer. Um, it could be that it's just been too hot outside and that excess heat is screwing with the resin. But doesn't explain why stuff would just drop right off the sprues. But for whatever reason, uh, the last two nights, uh, I've done an overnight print and those have seemed to work for some reason. And then I did one early this morning when it was still cool and it didn't work. So, hell if I know. Uh, at this point, I just want to finish my Stargrave team and then I'm probably going to clean the printer and put it up for a little while since I've got a bunch of stuff to work on as is. Um, I've tried to do a little bit of painting, but it just gets damn hot in this office. So, it gets unpleasant after a while. And still playing Go, that's really about it. I haven't been able to focus much when it comes to hobby stuff. Yeah, you're improving at Go, at least. Slowly but surely, it seems, which surprises me. I mean, Go is one of those games where the more you practice at it, the better you get, and the uh, more you realize how bad you were when you first started playing it. <laughs> Go, 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 go. That's 
That's all. That's all you got. All right. So for me, I've been playing Go, but mostly against you. I did some board games with friends over the weekend. Uh, We played Red Dragon Inn. We played Vi, which we've talked about on the podcast before, and we played The Lost Expedition, which is going to be today's board game corner. Uh, so didn't we already talk about that one? No, we talked about. Uh, oh, it was like the Lost Ruins of something. Lost Ruins of Arnak, and yep, that Lost Expedition, completely different game, and I think one you might like. Um. Woo. So, but we'll talk about that later. I also had two Dungeons and Dragons games. In the first one, the party continued their expedition into the jungles of Cubara, uh, closing in on the city of Hakatovak. Uh, they discovered that there is a magical ward around the city that sort of causes people to go around it instead of directly towards it. And they had to take out a patrol of lizard folk in order to get a token that it would allow them to bypass the ward. Uh, they did... Sneaky. A what? Sneaky. Yeah. Um, they got the token and they moved into the outskirts of the city and they started, like, using the party's familiar as a drone, essentially, to scout mm-hmm. around and try and figure out what's going on inside. Um get some information about the layout of the city and stuff. So now their plan is to sneak through the city and uh, see if they can figure out what exactly was going on and what happened the last time when the expedition they were following showed up. Uh, The other group... (laughs) um, One of them had a... One of them is a long-lost descendant of House Vol, who bear the Dragon Mark of Death. And this fact got revealed to someone working for the other long-lost descendant of House Vol, who is a half-dragon lich. And Oops. who um, really wants to find other live people who have the mark so that she can use that to regain the power she had in life and... Um, wreak terrible vengeance upon those who slighted her and maybe destroy the entire world while she's at it. She doesn't really give a shit. Um, so, but the the character is kind of naive and so when she was invited by his long-lost cousin to her castle, the party went. <laughs> um, and she was there and used polymorph to make herself look like a normal, like, young elf and they had a chat and um you know she served them dinner and the party was hanging out in this castle full of undead and the player got called up to her study which was you know kind of a wizard study and she um started you know getting some information and getting more into him about what exactly she wanted to do and revealed that she may have caused the day of mourning. Whoops. Um, and she wasn't trying to, she was trying to destroy the elven nation, not some random country in the middle of, uh, Korovar. She was trying to destroy the elven kingdom. The, the ritual just went wrong. It's what happens when you try and do a genocide. You get what you deserve. 
Well, it, I mean, she still did a genocide just on a different country. And now she wants to do another one. She's she's figured out her aim. She's got the aim in now, and she's going to do another one. And when the player decided he did not want to have a part in that, she's she basically offered him the choice of play a game against her. And if he wins, she'll let him and his friend go and give them a head start. And if he loses, everybody gets sent to the dungeons. Um, and so they, he, he chose to play the game, which was a modified version of Go, where the other... Friend of the pod. Yeah. Um, where the other players... Well, okay, one player was playing Go against her, and the other players were on the board taking the role of pieces but they were able to move around on their own turns. Um, Bro, how does that go? You can't move the pieces? That's heresy. Well, also, the pieces being played by the Lich could turn into monsters and attack the players if the players were next to them. Um, it's so modified in that it still used the Go rules for, like, placing pieces, but allowed the entire group to be involved in the game at the same time. Um, and eventually they won. So she then revealed that, oh, yes, she is fully a lich and yeah, a an especially terrifying lich and that he had, he and his friends had 24 hours. Run. And so the party ran to their airship and started planning how the hell they're going to get away from this. Quick, flap faster. Well, essentially their next the next chunk of story for them is going to kind of be Avatar the Last Airbender where they're running away from someone who's chasing them while at the same time they're trying to like gather allies and friends and figure out how to defeat this person. Unfortunately, I don't know much about Avatar the Last Airbender, so I'll just take your word for it. It's a good show. You might want to watch it. I mean, if you want... It, it, it is a cartoon, so... And it, it's a children's cartoon. It just has some good fantasy elements. But yeah, that's... Yeah, but when it... When have you known me to not watch children's cartoons? <laughs> um... I don't know. I don't think you watch, like, Owl House or anything. I've never even heard of Owl House. Another good currently airing by children's cartoons i mean children's cartoons from the early 90s oh well owl house is currently airing and you also would probably like that because it's about you know a, a kid who goes to a world full of witches and she then like wants to be a lich and uncovers the secrets of the magic system that their entire world runs on they're just trying to indoctrinate people into D D, just doing it the long yeah. way well, that one also has a cute lesbian romance, so. Uh, we, we stand queer representation yeah, no. in children's media. Yeah, Owl House, good for that kind of stuff. Um, and some other just bizarre shenanigans in it. It, I, I enjoy Owl House. Um, but yeah, so that's where that campaign sits, and they're going to be off doing some like travel sequence chase scene bits which should be a lot of fun 
Um, which I think that that's basically been my weekend hobby. So that leads us obviously into the main topic. Woo! Folklore monsters and cryptids. Now, the United States is sometimes described as a melting pot. And of that, one of the big melting pot things is folklore. What we have for folklore in the United States is a lot of times a mixture of Native American myths plus myths that were brought by European settlers or even uh, African, I wouldn't say settlers, but they were certainly taken and forced to settle here, usually in well, chains. Well, that's, uh, that's what the Texas school board wants them to call them now. Yeah, <laughs> forced settlers, you know, enslaved settlers. Yeah, they brought their mythologies and folklore with them. And the people already living here had folklore and mythologies, and the people who moved in had folklore and mythologies, and these all kind of got mixed together and twisted around, and we get some interesting things out of it. And then, of course, we have some of the more modern ones where there's just, like, weird shit added onto it, but it, it owes a lot to the old stuff. So let's first get into... Um, so what I'm going to do is I've got five different classic creatures from American folklore, and we'll talk about them, and we'll talk about, you know, why they're interesting and what might be, what their use might be in a role-playing game. The first one is one that most people have probably heard of, the Wendigo. Wendigos come from the folklore of the Plains and Great Lakes Native Americans. Uh, originally, it was said to be a malevolent spirit that possessed human beings, invoked feelings of greed, hunger, and the desire to murder and eat other humans. Um, it was not originally really a monster. It was a spirit thing that would possess and do crazy shit. European settlers, having heard of this, kind of combined it with werewolves. Um, which leads to the current depiction of wendigos as sort of half man half animal monsters usually with white fur and a lot of times with antlers and keeping the whole cannibalism and murder thing around because that's in both the native american mythology and the werewolf mythology so you know wendigos they're spirits involved perhaps but also cannibalistic, human-eating, murderous monsters. Um, and, you know, they have some very cool depictions of them. You can look up Wendigo artwork and see all sorts of crazy stuff. So what could you really do with them in a role-playing game? Ed, any thoughts? Um, first one that comes to mind is have a uh, player get possessed by that Wendigo spirit. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, somebody getting possessed by it, especially if a player does some of the things involved with the Wendigo, the feelings of greed, hunger, and cannibalism. If you have a player who... Classic, lawful, evil character. I mean, if you have a player who's acting super greedy, who's being, you know, especially, like, um, gluttonous, I guess, and 
if they're in a situation and that player maybe is crazy and does cannibalism, then having them be possessed by a Wendigo spirit is probably going to be an interesting storyline. You could also do something where the party ends up in a small, snowed-in village and find that there's a monster attacking and dragging people off into the woods and killing them, and it could turn out to be a member of the village who has, you know, is turning into a Wendigo at night or something. Um, bonus points if you make it so that it's not the person they think. You know, that it's... Dun-dun-dun. Like, it's, it's the innkeeper's daughter instead of the old grizzled watchman or the evil mayor or somebody. Um, you, it, uh, always, always go for a twist in that sort of situation. Everybody enjoys a twist. As long as you can, like, make it land. Players love a twist. Um, and you can also just kind of throw in Wendigo as a, a thing. Um, I've seen some things. I don't think it's really supported by the mythology and folklore, but the idea that if you kill the Wendigo, you kind of become the Wendigo, it, the spirit moves to you. And you could do that for a D&D party pretty easily or another role-playing game if you wanted to keep that feeling going and, you know, make that work. Maybe the party would have to figure out how to defeat the Wendigo without killing it. So Wendigos have a uh, lot going for them. Not only are they, you know, iconic and interesting and part of a mythology that doesn't get talked about much, that much, you know, they're, they, they can be used to do a sort of werewolf thing without having to get into werewolves. So I, I like a Wendigo for that. Werewolves with fewer stats. Yes. Uh, the next one is the Agropelter. This comes from the, like, lumberjack era of American folklore. Uh, the same stuff that gave us, like, Paul Bunyan and a lot of sort of tall tales stuff. Agropelters are said to inhabit hollow trees in forests ranging from Maine to Oregon. They typically hide in tall trees and hurl wooden branches and splinters and pine cones at intruders. They are said to look like slender apes or monkeys with incredibly muscular arms, covered entirely in black fur except for the face, which has an ash-gray skull pattern. I'm guessing in this case, the lumberjacks are not okay. No, the lumberjacks are not okay in this case. Basically, these were used... Folklore scholars say that these are kind of like used as an explanation for when someone gets hit by a tree that falls off a... or a branch that falls off a tree. <laughs> you, you blame the agropelters for it. Um, so as a monster, they're a really cool option for, like, deep forest ambushes. Um, both because, you know, you, you've gotten into the territory of these, like, territorial monkey things with skull... Uh, pattern on their face that just throw stuff at you from the top of the branches and also because like a battle with them might be kind of difficult if they're all up in the trees um and are just like hurling stuff from a vantage point and then ducking behind trees and stuff um 
That's that's going to make a lot of barbarians very angry that they can't do anything, and maybe they have to figure out how to cut down a tree real fast or make some climb checks or, you know, stuff like that. It it provides a different challenge to a party. Uh, some stories... Just use rage to cut the tree down. Yeah, you could try and rage and cut the tree down, and then you've become the lumberjack you swore to not be. And a, a smart mm -hmm. DM would try to figure out all right, so you cut down the tree, and then it falls, and now there's a tree, like, in between you and the rest of the party, and they've gotten even angrier because they were living there. Or it falls and hits the wizard or something. Like, you could do a lot of crazy stuff if someone's trying to cut down a tree in the middle of battle. Um, and some stories involve agro-pelters kidnapping people or being responsible for the disappearance of lumberjacks in the woods that, uh, are part of the agropelter territory. So you can do stories with that where, you know, someone's disappeared and the party is hired to go figure out why, or, you know, a child has been kidnapped, something like that. And maybe the party thinks it's going to be much more like dark and no, it's just like weird monkeys living out in the woods that, you know, are decided to raise someone, a human child. And are, too many monkeys. Yeah, you know, they're an interesting take on the, like, sort of American ape uh, cryptid. I, I like them. I think they're interesting. They could be a really cool use them instead of goblins for a first-level party that's trying to get into stuff out in the woods. Although yeah, I like throwing spiders at first-level parties when they go out in the woods. Ah! Spiders! Um, I once had a game where I did that, and the ranger used talk to animals to try and chat with one of the spiders and it, it it we had fun with that um provided them with a lot of information that they were able to use to accomplish their quest so the next one is the wampus cat um a wampus cat is another native american mythology one specifically the wampus cat comes from cherokee mythology it is a monster, a uh, human, usually female, who has been cursed for punish as a punishment uh, after they hid beneath the pelt of a wild cat in order to witness a sacred ceremony that they weren't supposed to see. Um, That's a very specific curse. Yeah, and, and there's a couple of different stories about it, depending on which tribe specifically you're getting it from or which native group is telling it. Um in some cases, it's a curse. In other cases, uh, it's someone who, like, used it to defend the tribe. It, it, there's a bunch of different stuff going on with it. Um, in several versions and various folk stories, it's been described as looking similar to a mountain lion. Um, sometimes it has six legs rather than four. Some depictions have it as having, like, spikes on its tail. Others say that it's amphibious and swims like a colossal mink, you know, kind of, yeah, it's a swimming one. Um, in certain, some cases, it has glowing yellow eyes that are said to pierce into your very soul and drive those who see them to the edge of madness. Not my soul. So what this tells me is that in a role-playing game, you've got a cursed shapeshifter who knows something about ceremonial magic and also has, like, a gaze attack that does sanity damage or some sort of, like, madness effect. That's a pretty solid uh, encounter there. 
also sounds like you could mix that in with uh, some Displacer Beast as well. Yeah, it could be sort of a mistaken for a Displacer Beast by somebody, perhaps. Um, the party sees tracks and they figure out, oh, it's a six-legged cat-like creature, and they're like, oh, it's a Displacer Beast, and no, it's not. Um, also, because of the whole ceremonial magic and being transformed thing, it could be like the natural foe of a druid. You know, That's maybe a, a druid who's not up on the up and up saw somebody sneaking into a thing and cursed them to be transformed into this monster, and so they're trying to hunt down the druid. Maybe the wampus cat isn't in oh, the no. wrong. That druid has gone lawful neutral. I think that's probably chaotic neutral if you curse somebody just for showing up. Although, I mean, if your law says people who show up who aren't supposed to get cursed, then I guess you're lawful neutral. Definitely not a good aligned druid. But yeah, the wampus cats are interesting. I They have a lot of stuff and you can sort of retell the story or one of the versions of the story in like as the players gather information or ask around at a town you can retell this mythological tale uh and that provides a lot of really solid backstory um i find that using existing mythology in that way is really helpful to draw players in because, well, existing mythology has stuck around for so long for a reason most of the time. Well, here's here's a question. Are there any potential pitfalls regarding cultural appropriation as far as using some of these cryptids in your games? Um, I would say probably not, especially if you're not... Um, the Wendigo and the Wampus Cat are the only ones that I'm brought in that are based in Native American mythology. And they are... Uh, the extent to which they are a combination of Native American mythology and then American folklore that's been added to them and adjusted from them is pretty hard to tell. So I don't think there's a whole lot of cultural appropriation going on. Unless you are using the original myths as exactly the original myths, which is unlikely to be the case. Um, and especially if you are setting it in a different world and just borrowing elements of these myths. I don't think that's cultural appropriation. Just don't be, don't be extremely racist. Yeah, in don't be racist in how you use these. That that's basically Just don't be racist in your games in general. Yeah. Um, don't be racist in how you use these, which I don't think the, the wampus cat being the enemy of a druid in a D and D game is not racist or even cultural appropriation because you're like adjusting a whole lot of it. And you're just using the existing mythology as inspiration for your own sort of thing. Um, also, have you heard of the phrase cattywampus? Yep. Now you know where it comes from. Interesting. Yeah, the wampus cat cattywampus. Um, so yeah, that's one. The next one is, I think, my personal favorite on this list. The Gumbaroo. The Gumbaroo is said to look like a fat black bear 
completely hairless with smooth, dark, leathery skin. The skin is incredibly tough, rendering the beast invulnerable to rocks, arrows, and even bullets. However, that like the creature is extremely vulnerable to fire and will burn explosively if lit. <laughs> uh, Gumbaroos make their dens in the base of huge, burned-out cedar trees, spend most of their time in hibernation, and only come out a few times each year to search for food. When hunting, the beasts are ravenous and will try to eat any living creature that crosses their path. So, yeah. An angry, hairless bear that you can't harm with normal weapons and that will explode and light everything around it on fire if you use fire spells on it. Sounds very much like a good D&D creature. Sounds like a party to me, really. Um, especially for, like, a lower-level party, because you'd probably want to say it has, like, uh, damage immunity to non-magical weapons. And, and stick it and have it be run into by like a third or fourth level party that has a couple of magical things but not a whole lot so that eventually someone tries fire and the bear explodes <laughs> um, I didn't know bears could explode it, I would probably set up an encounter where you run into like a mother and several cubs um, just so that the the initial explosion leaves multiple leaves other things still alive probably um and also you know or maybe the maybe there's a local who puts out a like puts a bounty on the gumbaroo that's been terrorizing his uh sheep or whatever and killed a local hunter or something and so the party has to figure out what the fuck a gumbaroo is first it's a it's a thing. Yeah, that's all we know. Yeah, so that's now it, it, a Gumbaru is very much a monster that is just a monster, and again, it comes from the like lumberjack era of American folklore, um, where it was kind of used as an explanation for random wildfires. Um. So we did, did no cultural appropriation whatsoever there. I guess, it's if you're in America. Giant bears did it. Um, if you're in Japan, I guess it's cultural appropriation to use a gumbaru in your game. Sorry. Uh, although you have my permission as someone who lives within the historical range of the gumbaru to yeah, I would say use it in your game. Like, our, our coast and the east coast has the most interesting cryptids. I don't think there's many cryptids that come out of the Midwest. Um... I mean, the Argo Pelter and a few others that I looked up were Midwest. A lot of the Midwest ones are more like Great Lakes region. Mm. Um, if you start doing some digging, you'll find a lot of like local folklore ones that are kind of interesting. Um, I love the American ape. Like almost every state has some variation on an ape-like monster that has been seen walking around and, like, was spotted by old Farmer McGurnty in 1832 and he took a shot at it with his musket, but missed. Um, Oregon does have a 
almost existing cryptid, which is the Lava Bear. Uh, a subspecies of bear found in eastern Oregon that were very small and lightly colored. Um, they looked similar to like a miniature grizzly bear, and they found several of them. And then determined that all of them were like malnourished and like small black bears. Is it truly a cryptid if it exists though? I mean, sort of. Is the Tasmanian tiger a cryptid? Uh. Because those are theoretically extinct, but people claim they've spotted them. That's a good question. I don't know. I, I feel like that one sort of is. Um, you can have a cryptid. The thing about the lava bear is it was, you know, talked about as if it was a new species. And, oh, we've got these special lava bears. Ah. And then it turns out that, no, it was just a misidentification of an existing species. A, a lot of sea serpents were, uh, are believed to have been ore fish that were just, you know, creeped people out because oarfish can get I mean, they do very, look very much like sea monsters they look like sea serpents and they can grow very large and they tend to live in deep ocean areas not shore areas so early sailors so a lot of sailors weren't familiar with them you know so actual animals can kind of be cryptids it's just that uh after a certain point when it determined that uh no it, it, it's just a bear that hasn't that's you know stunted growth because it couldn't get enough food in eastern oregon it's not a cryptid it's just an ecological tragedy yes yes but that brings us to our final cryptid the most recent mothman uh, the first claimed sighting of Mothman was by a group of men in West Virginia in 1966. Mothman, as reported, is a bipedal winged humanoid, with various reports claiming that it is more similar to an owl and others that speak of two massive glowing red eyes. Uh, many people who encounter Mothman have suffered from extreme fear and psychological distress, often lasting for months or years. Also, Mothman hates bridges. Uh, Mothman just wants more lamp. He's he's there in West Virginia to get the coal to, to power the power plants. Yes, a lot of to make more light. A lot of the early sightings of Mothman were around the TNT area, which was a World War II era weapons manufacturing facility that um, had a lot of chemical spills, and I think eventually became a Superfund site. So a lot of people sort of. It was the 60s. They were like, ah, the X-Men are a thing now. Must be some sort of mutant creature. Well, if the uh, FDA or if the Supreme Court has anything to say about it, it's not a Superfund site anymore. No, it can still be a Superfund site. Superfund was a separate program that Congress created. Good to know. Um, yeah, Superfund is a thing that the EPA can still do. The, the EPA just can't regulate any existing stuff. In fact, I'm sure the Supreme Court and the Republicans love Superfund sites because that's when a business usually fucks up the environment so badly that they just hand it over to the government and say, hey, you guys deal with it now. 
Mothman's your problem. Yeah, Mothman. Mothman is the cryptid equivalent of a Superfund site. <laughs> so essentially, Mothman is a flying, mysterious, human-shaped monster that haunts a town or region, for uh, a town or region, for unknown reasons. Um, Mothman has occasionally been described as swooping down at cars and like hitting the tops of them. Uh, although, uh, you know, unconfirmed, and is occasionally blamed for the Silver Bridge collapse, where a bridge fell down. Probably had more to do with uh, the bridge being poorly built, but, uh, you know, you can always blame uh, Mothman. I'm gonna go with Mothman on this one. Yeah. Um, so, essentially, Mothman is a... It, interesting cryptid in general and you know large flying human shapes keeps attacking or doing stuff in the town maybe he it's the result of like magical experiments that someone has done maybe it's the result of a curse maybe it's like a maybe it's just straight up a demon that got summoned here or something um you, you have all sorts of options for what you can do with it in a role-playing game um, I would definitely do something with, like, a fear aura that it has from the, you know, glowing red eyes. Uh, using that would probably be a good way to um, make it more than just a track it down and attack it sort of scenario for players. Especially in something like D&D. &D. Um, I would also say that if you're using Mothman as your thing, you probably want to end up tra tracking it down to a lair, which, based on what we've said about the, like, TNT area, should be some sort of abandoned structure that it roosts in. An abandoned bridge. Oh, yeah, or maybe it's a, like, broken down bridge with a... What you should really do is you should go for one of those sweet old, like, Renaissance-era bridges that had houses and stuff built onto the sides. And that is also broken, so it's roosting in the broken houses on the bridge. I can get behind that. Because I love bridges with houses on them. Bring back bridges with houses on them. Yes. Yes. 100%. Remember what they took from you. Yes. Uh... We live in Bridgetown, and yet none of the bridges have housing attached to it. We live in a city with many bridges and a housing crisis, and we haven't put two and two together? <laughs> Come on, people. Get on it, city council. Um, yeah, so that's... So, Ed, any final thoughts on cryptids and folklore monsters? Any other ones that you think maybe we should have talked about? Any ideas for how you mm. use them in campaign? For some reason, like, Wendigo feels like it would fit in well with uh, Icewind Dale for some reason. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like you could toss in a Wendigo thing into Rime of the Frostmaiden very easily. I guess also Mothman as well, since it's supposed to be like eternally night and you just have wrath of the of the Mothman. Yeah. Are there any bridges? Mm, 
I don't think so. I'm, I'm sure you could find an area where maybe there's a bridge crossing something and there's a Mothman that's aggressively defending the bridge against everyone. <laughs> Um, but you could also do a Wendigo, you know, the party runs into a house or a lodge that's snowed in somewhere and every night somebody's been disappearing and now it's a mystery and you have to figure out who, what's causing the murders and it turns out it's a Wendigo. The, uh, ape creature would also be another good one because there's a lot of, a lot of foresty items. Oh, the agropelter? Yep, that's yep. it. Agropelters are good. Um, yeah. Most of these could fit into any D&D campaign pretty easily. And I am always in favor of throwing in monsters that aren't from the monster manual. Um, or ad adding stuff that's not entirely in the monster manual and just coming up with new variants on it. Um, in my... D&D game that's dealing with lizard folk, they're dealing with a the black scale lizard folk, which includes a strengthened, like, standard lizard folk uh, stat block, because the normal ones are supposed to be bigger and tougher. And then it also includes a shaman lizard folk, which, again, same deal. And then I created the black scale lizard folk brutes, which are large-sized and super strong and wield giant clubs. And then the black-scaled lizardfolk Dragon Guard, which are... which wield, like, obsidian spears, and they're immune to poison and have fire resistance, and, oh, they have this thing where they can... when they're dying, instead of, like, just going out like a chump, they can, like immolate themselves and do a massive explosion of fire and poison to everything around them. You know? So, what I'm getting at is when you're running a D&D game or any other role-playing game, find interesting monsters and make them a part of the game. Don't just grab goblins and throw goblins at your party. Take the goblins and give some of them the ability to, like, hide in shadows or, like, jump through shadows to get to people, or maybe some of them have figured out how to spider climb and can walk on walls now. Do things with your monsters to make them unique to your game and unique to your players, and the players will remember them much better and be much more interested in the game. And, you know steal monsters from folklore to do the same thing because folklore monsters a lot of people probably haven't heard of and are already interesting and all you need to do is come up with rules for them which can be as simple as uh you know it's a displacer beast but it doesn't have tentacles i don't know if i would be able to specifically fit it into this D&D campaign but it might fit better in with, like, some kind of cyberpunk RPG. Uh, but my all-time favorite cryptid, the uh, Jinmenken from Japan, which is a uh, pug that has a human face, and its whole thing is that it, like, comes up to you at the side of the road, swears at you, and then runs away. Apparently these things go back to, like, medieval Japan, but there was also a lot of sightings of them in the 80s and 90s, and so they kind of came back for a bit as a... Uh, like secret government experiment gone awry 
So I feel like you could put those into a cyberpunk game pretty good. Yeah, no, I would definitely cybernetically enhanced pugs that just shit talk you. Yeah. And I mean, I've already I've already got an STL file for one of these things, so I've got to find a place to use it somewhere. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, you could have a whole cyberpunk campaign about like an infestation of them. And <laughs> there's too there's too many demon pugs. Yeah, demon pugs just like uh, some of them got loose, and so the party's been hired to exterminate them, and they have to deal the, with the whole time they're talking just pugs. At yeah. You. Well, they'd have the shit-talking pugs and also, like, an animal rights group trying to stop you from, like, eliminating these cybernetically enhanced, annoying dogs. Well, that's a good one. They shouldn't be, you know. Use folklore monsters. They're in folklore for a reason, and, you know, it's folklore. It's free. Uh, as Picasso said, good artists copy, great artists steal. So I think I steal most of my art. Well, yeah, but, but in this case, it's steal the source of your inspiration, steal ideas for how to make something better. And, you know, steal whatever, steal Mothman and throw him into your game as some sort of demon. Um, yeah, go, go nuts with that sort of stuff. That's one of the creative things that you can do with role-playing games that others, other sorts of games don't really let you do. And it's why I enjoy role-playing games so much. At least one of the reasons. Um, so yeah, do that. Woo, cryptids. Sorry, I'm kind of toasted. Yeah, no worries. Um, so we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner. And today we're going to talk about The Lost Expedition. So The Lost Expedition is by Pierre Sylvester, published by Osprey Games. It is about an expedition into the Amazon jungle to find the lost city of X, a.k.a. El Dorado. It is based on an actual expedition um, by the legendary explorer Percy Fawcett, who marched into the Amazon looking for El Dorado and was never seen again. Um, I was just going to ask if they all die. That tends to happen to white people when they go south of the equator. Yes, that, that is entirely something that can happen in the game. Um, and the artwork on it is kind of neat because it's a little bit Tintin-inspired. Um, and sort of the like clean line work and c solid coloration and the, the font choice for the game makes it look like a Tintin book, which is kind of neat. Um... It's co-op for one to five players. Uh, it also has a, like, head-to-head -head two player mode, but I, I haven't tried that out. I, we played, I think, a four-player game. Um, and basically, it's sort of a resource management as you play a series of cards that represent, like, your the encounters you're going to do each day. And then you have to manage your food, your ammunition, and the health of your three explorers. Um, and basically, as long as one explorer reaches the end, you win. But if you run out of stuff, you, you start losing. So you have to... Congratulations, you've died of malaria. Yes, or a cougar attack, or a giant snake, or one of the various local tribes. Um, 
all of which are based on the actual tribes of the region. So, you know, it's not just making shit up, which is kind of a nice touch. Um, also, you have three explorers, and each of them represents a certain, like, resource type. Um, I want to say it's... Like, one is navigation, one is... I don't know, each, you have three explorers, each of them representing a different resource type, but you have six character cards. Uh, so you can have an entirely female group of explorers or an entirely, like, non-white group of explorers. It gives you some cool options for coming up with your own uh, expedition group. Um, and I believe all of the explorers are based on, again, real explorers. Just kind of renamed. Um, it's good. I enjoyed it. It's it can be played solo, which is interesting, um, because it's based in, in exclusively on resource management against a deck of cards, basically. Um, which means that it's a different way to sort of play that. Uh, if you're interested in resource management games that are sort of lightweight, it's not super complex, and that have some really classic-looking art, I'd recommend it. If you don't like either of those things, I'd guess play a different game. Too bad. Game. And that's Board Game Corner. And Woo! that's a podcast. Yeah. As always, thank you for listening. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at, at NollCountry or on Instagram at NollCountry. You can like, subscribe, rate, give a thumbs up, do whatever your specific podcasting app does to tell people how much you enjoyed this, if you enjoyed it. If you didn't enjoy it, don't. Too bad. Don't do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry you've wasted an hour. Um Check again next week. Maybe you'll like Try again next better. week. We may have forgotten some realms by then. Uh, I mean, I did forget the realms and then did forget that we were podcasting today. Lots of forgetfulness. Just going around. Uh, Ed, anything you want to plug? You can see me being weird on Instagram at Adam Adness. Um, you can see me being weird on our Twitter. If something weird happens, that's usually me. Um, go ahead and support uh, True Colors United to fight LGBTQIA plus homelessness. Uh, support the Act Blue Reproductive uh, Reproductive Access Fund. Uh, support the Ukrainians. Support everybody, unless they're a dick. That's that's about all I got. Yeah, that that pretty much covers everything I would think of. Uh. Shop at your local game store, especially if they're one that supports LGBTQ-related uh, things. Um, yep. Go Knowles. Go Knowles. I can actually say that once and sound slightly inebriated. <laughs>